0: Get Real is recorded on the unceded lands of the Boonerong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We also acknowledge that the First Peoples of Australia are the first storytellers, the first artists and the first creators of culture, and we celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories.
1: Welcome to Get Real. Talking Mental Health and Disability. Brought to you by the team at Irma 365. Join our hosts, Emily Webb and Karenza Louis-Smith, as we have frank and fearless conversations with special guests about all things mental health and complexity. We
2: recognise people with lived experience of mental ill health and disability, as well as their families and carers. We recognise their strength... and unique perspective as a vital contribution to this podcast so we can learn, grow and achieve better outcomes together.
1: And what I did at the beginning of my research process was I just put a question out there on social media and I said, hey, do you want to talk about this? Get in touch. And the deluge of messages that I got was shocking. Like, it's really incredible to see people coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, yeah, this is really important and I want to talk about my experience. We live in a society that is very based on capitalism and the production and the productivity of how we use our bodies and our minds. And to some extent, I do feel like the stigmatization of mental health is very tied to that in the sense of how people are disabled from having you know, productive output, productive work output when they have certain mental health conditions compared to others.
0: Hello and welcome to Get Real. Carenza Louis-Smith is here too and we're excited to be back with our fortnightly episodes this year. Hello, Carenza. Hi,
2: oh, hey, Em. It's great to be back and bring on 2023. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I know, right? 2022 was, you know, interesting, but I think 2023, I'm going into it with a lot of hope. Karenza, we've been talking about how much we're looking forward to this episode because we'll be discussing issues that we are very familiar with at Irma 365, which is complex mental health. Our specialty is working with people who live with complex mental health, but we know, and you've been in the industry for years, that there's still stigma and lack of understanding about this outside of the realm of the mental health and disability sector. That's true, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's completely true, Emily, and this is, I think, a really important conversation that we need to be having, you know, as a society. We need to talk more and more about mental
0: illness and not just things like anxiety and depression. So our guest for this episode is Elfie Scott, and Elfie is a Sydney-based journalist whose work has appeared in BuzzFeed Australia, Guardian, The Saturday Paper, Junkie, and Vice. Elfie, as we speak, is about to release her first book called The One Thing We've Never Spoken About. Exposing Our Untold Mental Health Crisis. Now, listeners, I could not put this book down. It's an incredibly engaging and compelling book. It's part memoir about Elfie's living experience and that of her mum, who lives with schizophrenia. And it's also a journalistic delve into why there's massive barriers for people who experience mental health conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, psychosis, obsessive compulsive disorder, and that's to name a few but we'll be exploring this later so I won't say too much. I think this book is an absolute gift for conversation and awareness about these mental health conditions that the public don't know as much about and the realities of how people live with and manage these day to day. Welcome, Alfie. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited to have you on Get Real.
1: Thank you so much, Emily. It's so lovely to meet you and Carenza. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast.
0: Before we start, we'll be talking about some topics that listeners may find difficult. If you are affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14, and there will be details for other support services in the show notes for this episode. So, Alfie, your bio in the book says one of your greatest joys is explaining complicated things in accessible ways, and you've certainly done this with the book, The One Thing We've Never Spoken About, Exposing Our Untold Mental Health Crisis. As I mentioned, I couldn't put it down. You're a journalist and you have a science background having studied psychology. So what compelled you to write this book and put the experiences of your mum and family out in the open?
1: So this was a book that I think was a long time coming for me. The concepts and themes that I explore in the book are things that I've been obviously stewing on for quite a long time. But I think the thing that really tipped me over the edge and made me realize that I should be writing something like this was really when I started to look at discussions on Twitter and the dialogue around mental health that I saw people who I would consider to be, you know, quite liberal, quite conscientious people having about complex mental health conditions. I saw that, you know, we can talk so openly in certain demographics about depression and anxiety, the more common mental health conditions. But when it came to things like schizophrenia, there was still so much stigmatized language. And so I really felt like A, talking about my mum's story to give people a bit of a basic understanding of what schizophrenia is and how people can live with schizophrenia, but then also taking a bit of a dive into stigma in general and why those conversations are still so stilted and backwards and misunderstanding about complex mental health conditions.
0: And you start the book telling your readers about your mum. And I don't want to give too much away as readers will find out about it, but it was really compelling the way you spoke about your mum and your family dynamic and how you learnt about her feelings over all these years about her life. Now, your mum's experience being a woman from Indonesia, her career as a flight attendant, meeting your dad, and her life as a young mum in Australia is really interesting and you talk about that. And I could really feel the struggle and isolation So what was it like for you to discover more about your mum as an adult woman, you know, when you started to explore talking more about it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think to some extent, like there is a bit of an unknowability about parents in general for a lot of kids, right? Like you just don't hear the stories that your parents have to tell. And so it was actually pretty incredible to get to sit down with my mom and ask her questions about her life that I just never really felt licensed to ask before. And when she started telling me in more detail about how her mental health condition actually transpired, the sort of symptoms that she had at the beginning, things started to lock into place that I suppose I had sort of suspicions about or questions about as a younger kid. And it really started to make sense, her story as a whole and the way that you know she spoke about how she resented Australia to start off with and she never particularly felt like moving here and how that sort of built on the trauma that she had experienced as a child and the way that she felt that isolation when she moved here. I think that all of it started to feel like there was this logical track to what happened and why. And yeah, it was really illuminating. And I got a much greater sense of her as a person, which I think for any of us, when we're talking about our parents, is a great privilege to be able to understand them more as a person and as the human who had a life before they had you.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Parents are people, hey? Um, I'm discovering that having kids. Yeah. <laughs> they, think, they think you're yeah, mostly exactly. irrelevant. So, Elfie, you also talk
2: about your own mental health in the book, in your teens and in your 20s, and you speak with others, including the fantastic artist, advocate and author Heidi Everett, who we've actually interviewed on Get Real. So, Emmy and I found these interviews and their insights really, really powerful, and we certainly haven't read a book like the one thing we've never spoken about. It's definitely filling a gap. Was it difficult to get people to share their experiences with you, or were people keen, or was it a kind of mixture?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I didn't pursue anybody really to get them to answer questions about their complex mental health conditions. Like, I really appreciate that there is a huge amount of privacy around these sort of things. And, you know, I would never push somebody to tell me their story. And what I did at the beginning of my research process was I just put a question out there on social media and I said, hey, if you want to talk about this, get in touch. And the deluge of messages that I got was shocking. Like, it's really incredible to see people coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, yeah, this is really important and I want to talk about my experience. And to be able to interview those people about really intimate details of their life was incredible. And I wonder if people felt more compelled to be able to talk to me because I do have family experience with schizophrenia, so they knew that they weren't coming into a judgmental space necessarily. But yeah, people were very, very open and the people who came forward to me were very willing to share so many uh, nitty-gritty details of what they'd been through, their experiences with the mental health care system, their experiences with mental health symptoms. So there really wasn't a push to try and find people. They were there. They were there and waiting to tell their stories. And I think that was pretty extraordinary to just be able to scratch the surface a little and see what was underneath there just waiting to come out.
2: I think it's really powerful what you're talking about, because I think providing a space and a platform for people to actually be able to open up and share their stories is is huge. And and a space that's safe, because I think, you know, my experiences and my experience of my own mental health is, you know, it's really hard to find those safe spaces because there's this big fear of will people see me differently? What will people think about me if they know this about me? It can be really, really hard, I think, for people to share or disclose. And and I think in workplaces as well, it can be really, really challenging. It can be really hard even with friends. And And I think what you're talking about is, you know, once you create that platform and a space that's safe and people talk. It has this um this ripple effect and how do we, you know, really change some of that stigma? I mean, the world should you shouldn't be afraid to go to work and say, Well, look, I have a mental illness and it's X and Y and Z, but we are. So yeah, I'm I'm really interested. Why yeah. why don't why do you think things aren't shifting for people with what we might describe as more complex mental health conditions perhaps than anxiety and depression?
1: Yeah, it's a really multifaceted question, I think, and it comes with a lot of different answers. So I think on a broader societal level, like we live in a society that is very based on capitalism and the production and the productivity of how we use our bodies and our minds. And to some extent, I do feel like the stigmatisation of mental health is very tied to that in the sense of how people are disabled from having, you know, productive output, productive work. Output when they have uh, certain mental health conditions compared to others, and I think that's definitely a part of it. I also think that there is so much space that's taken up by the dialogue of some more common mental health conditions. And that's not a bad thing at all, but I do think that the dialogue is kind of swamped by that in a way. And so the people who are living with those more complex conditions, they feel as though they're not entitled to kind of come into this conversation at all as well. But then there's other things as well. There's things like the structural inequalities that actually hold people back from recovery. There's things like justice and housing and the mental health care system and the failures of those to actually support people who are living with complex mental health conditions that make it very difficult to speak openly and honestly, because there's so many holes and cracks for people to fall through. So it's a really big, complicated cycle. And I think that Stigma is very much intertwined with structural failures, and that's kind of the theory of the book. and basically, my theory about it is that we should just break through. like by speaking about it by talking and cracking through that silence, perhaps we'll be able to improve people's lives, but also we'll be able to have more open and honest dialogues about this sort of stuff.
2: I think you know when I think about the the world and how complex, um, mental health is spoken about. There's often this kind of fear that sits behind it. You know, it's portrayed in a in a negative way. I can't think of another way to kind of describe it. You know, so when you, we talk about anxiety and depression, we accept that. And I think COVID's made us more accepting. We've all experienced that in COVID. We experienced loneliness, fear, anxiety. Am I going to be okay? Will my family be okay? One in every two Australians in our lifetimes will will go through those moments. We get that. We understand that. But I think what you're talking about is when our understanding of more complex mental health presentations and conditions we're, we're scared of them in some ways we don't understand enough did that come across in the people that, that you talked to and did that was that something that your mum had experienced too that kind of fear that others had that stopped those conversations from happening
1: yeah yeah absolutely so my mum she is kind of a unique case study in the sense that she has always had a group of friends around her who always knew about her mental health condition and sort of rallied around her and she has been friends with them for decades. But absolutely, for so many people that I spoke to, they spoke of social isolation. They spoke of the idea that they go into their workplaces and they're terrified that somebody will find out. Oh, I also had sources who dropped out of the book completely, which I don't blame them for, but, you know, purely because they were horrified by the idea that their peers or colleagues might find out who they were through this book. And definitely that stigma is just so stifling for some people. And I really think that that is something that needs to be spoken about even in and of itself because it holds people back. It isolates them. It makes them feel as though they can't live up to their... Full potential, it makes them feel like they should be withdrawing when that's absolutely untrue. And, you know, people should be rallying around these people who have these mental health experiences in their communities.
2: So, in your book, you talk that Australia used to be, I think, a world leader in public discussions about depression, developing better support services, and then you say, "We, you know, we're not doing this." And certainly, your the interviews in your book would suggest we're not doing this when it comes to more complex issues. And you talk, and you, you know, you talk about we've got to try and push through, and we've got to be able to talk more about this. How do you think people can actually? start those conversations or be open to those conversations. Did you get anything from the interviews that you had or some some things that you gleaned?
1: Yeah, I think it's much like the discussion around stigma, to be honest, because it is a multifaceted thing. Like if this if the problem is multifaceted, the approach to the solution has to be multifaceted. And so I do think that, you know, it starts with the conversation. It starts with how we speak about people who live with schizophrenia in the media especially. I don't know if anybody was watching a certain, I won't say the name, uh, popular broadcast television show last night and they were interviewing somebody. And then at the end of this interview, completely irrelevant to mental health conditions, the interviewee said, oh, yeah, I'm scared of flying because a schizophrenic, I'll put that in quotation marks, tried to crash a plane that I was on once. And I looked up this story, and there was no concrete uh, diagnosis that had actually been broadcast in any news source. So, this was completely speculative. And, you know, that sort of stigma is just everywhere. So, I think it really does start in a way with media. It starts with how we address language and uh, compassion for other people when we're talking about stories around these topics. I also think that. It comes from the mental health care system as well and government, because there is a complete silence about this sort of stuff in uh, government dialogue around mental health care policy. They don't really understand how to deal with people with complex mental health conditions. They don't understand their needs. And there hasn't been a great redressing of how the system works in order to support people who need ongoing care. So I think that it comes from all of these different places. And the place to start is probably with education and conversation.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting talking about the media because I've been a journalist off and on for like more than 20 years and I've co-hosted a true crime podcast for five years and I know myself reporting about mental health over the years has not been great. I've certainly made my missteps over the years. An instance I can share is... Using the word junkie for people who use drugs, oh, wow. I mean, I think uh, some, some uh, media outlets still use that. But I know in recent years, it's like, it's not something I want to use. But back years ago, that's how you would frame it you attract readers especially with online where you've got to have eyeballs and you know this because you're you're a journalist who writes for online publications and I've learned so much about mental health so media and content creators have a huge responsibility in communication about mental health don't they?
1: You know, I think that we have made leaps and bounds in recent years in terms of talking about certain marginalised communities. Like you say, there has been language that's been altered because we have a greater understanding of what people are going through and the psychological, uh, medical experiences that people have. And that's fantastic for so many communities. There are just words that have completely been erased from our dictionaries, at least Uh, you know in public facing conversation and I really applaud that but when it comes to schizophrenia when it comes to talking about people living with complex mental health conditions we're still so willing to employ words that are ostensibly slurs Mm -hmm. and I I really noticed that once I started writing the book, actually, like I would even hear people around me uh, when I was walking down the street and things like that saying words where I was like, oh my God, you haven't thought about that for a second. And I think that's all it really takes is for people to step back for a moment and really consider like the origin of that word and the communities that are affected by them. So yeah, I do think that media plays a huge part in that. And I think that for crime reporting, it can be especially complicated, purely just because if you're reporting about crimes, then you're focusing on the crimes that have been perpetrated by certain people and maybe the mental health conditions that they live with. That's fine. And I think that there should be whole truths being reported. But I do think there's an increasing argument to say what is the relevance of somebody's mental health condition when we're reporting on crimes? And how can those mental health conditions be reported in an ethical fashion? So, you know, why should there be the word schizophrenic in a headline? What, what does that actually say about that person and their history? And what does it tell us about the crime that they've perpetrated? often very little or next to nothing, and it's really just this boogeyman sort of thing that's being employed by the media. So yeah, there are definitely questions that we have to ask both about the language that we ourselves employ, but then also the language that's employed by the media and the approach that they take.
0: So Alfie, you yourself have spoken openly about your own mental health journey, you know, you've written columns, you've done journalism and you allude to it in the book. If you're comfortable, can you just talk a little bit about your own experience and I guess what you've learned, especially since writing the book?
1: So, you know, I have absolutely had experience of depression and anxiety for a very long time. On and off at the moment, I would consider myself to be thankfully uh, quite psychologically healthy, I would say. And that is great. That's been a rare period in my life since I was about 14. I also had experience of disordered eating for a very long time. And I think the thing that I really reflected on when I started writing this book was that I could speak about those conditions to my friends. And maybe that is something that was specific to my friendship group, but I could always call somebody and be like, hey, this is happening to my mental health and it's making me feel X, Y, and Z. Can you give me a little bit of support in this? And that was fantastic. But what I really realized was that I could never speak about my mum's condition and what was going on at home. So there was this really strange kind of dichotomy for me in what I could speak about, even though they were both mental health conditions and they both existed in the same universe. So I thought that that was always really interesting and that was actually kind of a launching pad as well for why I felt compelled to write the book at all.
2: Elfie, I'm really interested. What, What was it? You know, you've obviously got a great friendship network and you could talk quite openly about what was happening for you. What was it that stopped you being able to share with that group of friends, clearly people that you deeply trusted and cared about and who cared about you? What were the things that meant that you couldn't talk about your (sighs) mum?
1: It's such a good question. And I think that that is the mystery of stigma to some extent. It is this strange kind of weight and shame and darkness that you feel like you can't shift and you feel like you can't burden other people with. And I don't know exactly. I mean, I think that ultimately it was just stigma and the idea that I don't think I could have found a huge amount of understanding, not for any fault of theirs, but just because they weren't particularly educated about those topics. Like when I did first tell my best friend that mum was living with this condition, uh, she said, oh, she has schizophrenia, but I've, I've never seen her multiple personalities before. And I was like, yeah, okay, so you know what I mean? So there just wasn't that basis of understanding to actually lean on. And I think that is something that I would come out with this book with is that it is great to be able to educate younger people particularly about these topics. And it would be wonderful if discussion of schizophrenia and psychosis was included more broadly in mental health conversations with young people.
2: If we were to blow away those kind of, I suppose, the stigma and discrimination, you know, when you think schizophrenia, you go to crime, you go to multiple personalities, you go to people doing things that are frightening. What was your experience like? What was your mum's schizophrenia like to live with as you grew up?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, So my mum has what I would consider to be uh, quite a mild form of the condition. She experiences psychotic symptoms, but she hasn't, in my lifetime at least, had what we would consider to be a psychotic breakdown. So she experiences hallucinations from time to time. She experiences delusions. Uh, When I was a young kid, it was always about somebody breaking into the house. Somebody's trying to break into the house, which now I think, you know, maybe reasonable. Who knows? Maybe somebody is trying to break into the house sometimes. Uh, But, you know, it was always just this kind of, mild background noise to what we were experiencing in our childhood so it was always something that we could just like have as part of our normal day-to-day universe and it was never hugely intrusive. As for other people's experiences I know that schizophrenia can be an extremely severe condition and I do include uh, discussions of that in the book and how there is this huge fast spectrum of experience uh, with mental health conditions. And so when it comes to my mum, I think that she was extremely supported by the psychiatrist sessions that she was able to afford when she first became unwell. Uh, I think that she was extremely supported by her social circle. But I know that recovery is a different concept for a lot of different people and it's a lot harder for other people. And it's hard to encapsulate schizophrenia as a single diagnosis when there's so much going on there. As for my mum, it was just a lot of stuff that I sort of thought was eccentric when I was a kid, and I guess it is eccentric. But she also might just be an eccentric person, so who knows?
2: <laughs> I think that's really important, is it? You know, isn't it? As being able to kind of talk about what that experience has been like, and you talk in your book as well about the mental health system here in Australia, and obviously in Victoria right now, we're going through some major changes to mental health services with the Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission's looked and it said, well, the service system really is broken. It's fragmented. It's difficult for people to navigate. And you just said something that struck a chord with me. You know, things were really helpful when your mum could, uh, you know, have the funds and money and could afford to go and find and see a, a psychiatrist. But they can be very mm-hmm. difficult. So people don't have the funds and the money. I'm interested to know, what do you think when you think about more complex mental health, I guess, diagnoses and presentations? What would you like to see change in the way that the the mental health system supports people, but also families more broadly too?
1: Yeah, so I think that what's happening in Victoria at the moment is obviously quite revolutionary for uh, Australian mental health care systems in the sense that there is a building of community mental health care. There's a building on uh, peer support people with lived experience being able to inform how policy is actually created around mental health care, who knew that that could be a fantastic idea. So many aspects to this. I do think that a lot of this comes down to the complete dearth of political conversations around mental health care. But, I mean, for a start, why do we only have now 10 Medicare-subsidised psychology sessions again after COVID? What was it that, you know, led up government to believe it was a good idea to roll back those extra sessions. And even that is not enough for people living with complex mental health conditions. So I really do think that there needs to be a building of community mental health care services. There needs to be serious addressing of how we approach mental health care based on the experience of people who have actually been through the system as well, because those are the people who can best inform how policy is created. But then there are so many other aspects to life with a complex mental health condition and I do think that things like housing need to be taken more seriously and other aspects of life that help people just get by in their day-to-day.
0: Karenza mentioned before support for families and carers is important and, in fact, IRMA365 was started 40 years ago through community members, a lot of family who were caring for people with complex mental health. In fact, one of our founders, he was really involved with, it was Schizophrenia Fellowship, I think at the time. But yeah, so we have, this is really at the heart of what we do and we do stuff for carers. So you mentioned in the book, like some of the support that's out there and that you also found, including a Facebook group for families of people living, who live with schizophrenia. So what are your thoughts about how we need to support carers and families and what have you found useful for yourself?
1: So I would never consider myself a carer. I've never considered myself a carer. I'm a family member, but, you know, I, I don't, I definitely don't have to shoulder the same sort of weight that a lot of carers around Australia do. But in terms of the carer experience, the thing that shocked me the most actually coming out of the research that I did was about the real way that caring actually holds people's lives back uh, hugely in terms of their socioeconomic status and their ability to actually work and get out there and socialize it's hugely disturbing to people's lives i just think that there needs to be a bolstering of the community mental health care system in order to support carers as well. Like this comes down to families and it comes down to the people living with complex mental health conditions themselves. Like this is all wrapped up into the same sort of communities. And I just think that there has been a real uh, sort of gutting of the community mental health care system that we've seen in the past couple of decades. Like Specifically, I'm thinking of people who I spoke to in the ACT who said, you know, there used to be these drop-in centers for our kids where we could take them and they could socialize and they could just hang out when they were feeling a little bit down and you know, talk to people who had the same experiences. There's nothing like that now. There used to be carer hotlines where people could actually call up and talk to people who were going through the same experience to be able to get support from people who they knew had the same kind of understanding about family dynamics. So I just think that there's so much that doesn't exist that very much should and needs to be funded And there just needs to be more cash given towards these kind of community centers that we know work for sustaining people's livelihoods, for sustaining their well-being and their social health as well
2: we're just days away, I think, aren't we, from your book's release? Um, And there's obviously a lot in this book and we're talking a lot, you know, today about the conversations you've had and the things that you've heard. How do you feel now with the book, you know, just days away? And I guess, you know, how does your mum and your family more broadly feel too about the book?
1: Oh, well, I'm terrified. I'm very anxious about the whole thing. (laughs) But my mum, my mum is really supportive of it and she's really excited for it to be out in the world, I think. You know, when I first started writing the book, or actually before I started, I didn't even start the process until I had permission to write it from everybody in the family. But when I first spoke to my mom, she was like, Yeah, absolutely. And I wasn't expecting a yes, to be honest. But she said, yes, I really want you to write this book because I think that it could help other people. And I think that that's really what my mom is excited for, is the idea that maybe by sharing her story, by sharing our family's story, there will be value for other people. And I think that's what she's really pumped up for. I'm terrified for the mistakes that I've probably made in it that somebody's going to point out at some point. But, you know, that's just what comes with a book and I'm excited in the same way that she is because I do think that the feedback that I'm getting from people like yourselves so far is that, you know, there isn't something like this out there right now and if it helps one person to have a little bit more understanding of what's going on, then that's all I care about really.
0: No, definitely. Look, it's, it's weird releasing a book. I've done it but not with the kind of book you're writing, which I think is incredibly helpful. I've done some true crime books but you do feel sick Before it happens, and it's almost like you want to, you wish you'd never done it. Most people don't message mean things, but so you'll <laughs> get someone talk about a punctuation mark. Uh, everyone's got it. That's doesn't matter. That's exactly
1: it. I'm <laughs> sure that there's got to be a typo in there, uh, it doesn't matter, but that's fine. And we'll you, can,
0: it. you can have like seven people read it and you just miss it. But yeah, just in, yeah, enjoy it as much as you can. And I think you'll be very busy, actually. I can see this is a very important book and you're going to be talking a lot. So take care of yourself. So that leads me to my next question. Mm-hmm. We like to ask everyone who appears on the show about this. What do you do to take care of your mental health, Alfie? And has writing the book changed anything for you in how you do this?
1: Um, What do I do to take care of my mental health? I try to meditate fairly regularly. I use the Headspace app, which I actually find was really helpful for the writing process because it's just something that helps my brain focus a little bit uh, in the mornings because I feel very scatterbrained otherwise. In terms of taking my care of my mental health on a day-to-day basis, I would say regular exercise is something I always think is very important for me personally, just because I have so much stress and anxiety and my brain's going in a million different directions. So just Going and exercising and forcing myself to do that is incredibly helpful. And other than that, I just try to take a step back from work as well. Like writing the book was a very consuming process. And I think that what it taught me most of all was to shut everything down at the end of the workday, walk away, uh, do stuff that's actually fulfilling and feels good, uh, you know, go Pain or go talk to my partner or I'll go make up some screenplay or stories with him. I think that those are the really important parts of the day and I try not to put too much focus or importance on work.
2: This has been a great um, conversation and we're just coming towards the um, end of this episode of Get Real and there's a couple of things that have really struck me really strongly and I think the first thing you said was in the interviews, the f- fear that people feel in a workplace and how they'll be seen and but also as well your experiences of growing up with a mum with schizophrenia and then it wasn't terrifying and it isn't frightening and you know as a family you you've found your way through all of that and it's different to what perhaps we've seen on the clickbait things online or Mm -hmm. on tv shows even you know about how schizophrenia can can be portrayed if you were to leave some thoughts today with our listeners whether you're someone with schizophrenia or living in a family that supports someone with schizophrenia or whether you're someone just out in the world in a workplace what do you think you might say what could we do differently or change so that we can have more conversations and, and, and the I guess the stigma and the fear goes?
1: When I'm talking about final thoughts for people, I really want people to focus on two things. The first is actually a question that I would leave people with, which is why you think we can't talk about complex mental health conditions. Like why do you think that there's silence around this as opposed to more common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety? And maybe by thinking about that for a moment, it might illuminate some sort of bias or stereotype in your own mind. And I think that that's absolutely fine. Like I don't want to shame people for the stereotypes that they hold. There's a reason they're there and they're not your fault. So I would just encourage people to step back and reflect on those for a moment. And the other thing that I want people to think about just in general is the way that we approach vulnerability and disability in our communities. And I just want people to also reflect on how we actually treat people who are a little bit more vulnerable and why and those are really the two things that I think I would gently put to people who are finishing this book to really consider just going forward and hopefully that strikes up a little bit more compassion and conscientiousness and at least a little bit more education around these kind of topics. Alfie,
0: thank you so much. What a brilliant conversation. Carenza, it's been great, hasn't it? Fantastic. Yeah, so thanks so much, Alfie. Thanks for your time and just being so open and congratulations on the book.
1: No, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast and thank you for the incredible work that you do because I really think that after writing this book and meeting so many incredible people, it's the biggest takeaway for me how hard people work in community mental health organisations and the way that you use your time and for other people's benefit. And I just think that that's fantastic and you should be really proud of yourself. So thank you so much.
0: Now, if you've been listening and need support, we have links to support services in the show notes for this episode. So check those out. And Elfie's book, The One Thing We've Never Spoken About, Exposing Our Untold Mental Health Crisis, will be on the shelves when this episode goes to air. So grab a copy, online, Google it. It'll be in major bookstores. We can't recommend it enough. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
1: We'd love you to share Get Real.
0: You can also rate and review Get Real on your preferred podcast listening player. Your reviews help people find us.
1: At Irma 365, we believe in the potential of everyone.
0: Irma 365 is a lifeline for people who are challenged with complex mental health and disability.
1: Our work supports people to improve their quality of life and reach their personal potential.
2: We walk side-by-side with people, providing them with the support they need to live the lives they want within a supportive
0: community.
1: Find out more about Irma 365 online at www.irma.org. That's E-R-M-H-A dot org.